scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat And you do those things to your brethren. And Father, we humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue to worship you in this time by opening the word of God and trusting your Holy Spirit to speak to us through the ministry of your voice and the power of your spirit as we open the word. So we pray, prepare us, and please, Lord, speak to us what we need to hear from this portion of your word. And we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, even as the Lord's people are not immune from experiencing illness or enduring hardships, it is also true that from time to time, even as Christians, we're going to experience occasions amongst God's family when we have disagreements, when we may have disputes amongst one another and things that cause matters to transpire that bring tension and rivalry and dispute among us, even as brothers and sisters in Christ. And look, those can be small matters, and sometimes they can even be quite severe as well in their intensity, depending upon what type of and what level of mistreatment happens. But the reality is it does happen from occasion. Time to time, Christians will find themselves in conflict not with someone who's unsaved or in the world, but sometimes Christians find themselves in conflict with a fellow Christian because problems arise amongst us and we to some degree have, like all of us have in our natural families, sibling conflict. It happens at times. And we're grossly naive and spiritually immature if we think that it wouldn't happen among us even as God's people. The Bible declares it and gives us counsel regarding it. And it may be because of a difference of views we have on the matter. Maybe there's some personal offense that happens, some misunderstanding transpires, or it may even be something connected to maybe a larger scale. Maybe it's a financial issue that took place, or maybe a business transaction that went wrong between two Christian people. The question becomes, what do we do in regards to solving the dispute? How do we work to resolve the conflict, whether, again, it's a social or relational rift or whether it's even a financial or a business problem that's arisen in some way between two of God's people? Well, that's what our text, as you can tell, is kind of addressing for us, resolution of problems when they happen amongst God's family because they were happening in Corinth and they happen to some degree even in the local church today. And it corrects 
two things, wrong attitudes as well as wrong approaches in how we take care of those things. And it offers God's view on a right attitude and God's view on a right approach to how we should address these kind of things when they happen. Now, as we've seen already, the Corinthian church manifested a problem to some degree of absorbing the ideals of the outside world and following really some of the patterns of the world in the way they conducted themselves within the church. And this has been a part of some of the things that Paul has been addressing in this letter so far, that they've taken ideals of the world and the way that the world does things, and they're just now applying to them those things to the way that they lived as God's people. And in some areas, there was little difference at all between how people behaved out in the world and how people actually behaved within the church. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has been addressing in this letter, that's really dysfunctional. That there should be a clear distinction between how things happen out there with people who don't profess to follow God. They don't agree with or want to follow God's word. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, nor the love of God or all the other things we share as God's people. And the way that we conduct ourselves within the church family, which is a vastly different thing. And Paul's already addressed some of these areas He's going to continue to go on and dress more. He identifies another symptom here. It's addressed in chapter six, where the church was actually, as you can tell by its reading, the church was actually taking each other members at times to court and were suing one another in the public courts out in the civil sector. And look, the Greek culture, and this is important to understand what I said earlier about absorbing the ways of the world. The Greek culture at that time was obsessed with the whole courtroom and judiciary process. Again, understand, you're talking about a culture where forms of entertainment that we maybe utilize today didn't really exist. They weren't watching Netflix all night long. They didn't have social media. So their forms of entertainment were like throw a guy in the middle of a coliseum and let a lion chase him around. I mean, they had very different forms of entertainment, sporting events. Well, one of their forms of entertainment actually became their obsession with court trials. And at times, they would literally have uh, juries that would consist of hundreds of people that would listen to these cases. And it almost became like their uh, you know, uh, soap opera, reality TV type program where they would listen to these cases and they'd follow all the different presentations of the facts and they would take sides and they would they would cheer when certain things were said and they would boo when they didn't like other stuff. And it became this whole thing where it literally became, to some degree, this distorted form of social entertainment. And we thought Judge Judy was unique and interesting. Look, th- this topped that tremendously. They loved this kind of stuff. Now, to that degree that it went on out in the world, the sad thing is instead of the church upholding God's higher standards, they were just kind of embracing and adopting the same way that the world did things. And this is what it seems was taking place in the church of Corinth there. And so Paul's addressing it. And you notice in this reading of our verses, he asks repeated questions. If you didn't take notice in those eight verses, there's nine questions Just in those eight verses, Paul almost does more questioning than he does instructing in this section. And what he's trying to do by the Holy Spirit is to strongly question their error of how they were handling things to kind of wake them up. Like he's saying, look, 
I'm questioning this. I'm questioning that attitude. I'm questioning, and all these questions were intended to kind of like make them think about what are you doing? What you're doing is really questionable. Don't you recognize it? And perhaps shouldn't it be something that was changed? So look with me in verse one. Paul says, first of all, dare, how dare you? That's the language there. Dare any of you, he says, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, that is those who are unsaved in the world, and not before the saints. So Paul begins by identifying their mistake, which was the way in which they responded when they were handling time to time conflicts and matters and problems between one another as God's people. He speaks of there in verse one, having a matter against another. Other translations render that when one of you has a dispute with another believer. Another translation renders it when one of you has a grievance against another. Now take notice, the very language itself indicates these things do transpire from time to time. One of the clearest things that God is trying to tell us in his word is at times, the first thing to recognize is there are going to be situations that will arise that will cause you to be at odds with another Christian or have a dispute with a fellow believer. And the very first step is the maturity to realize this is just a reality. That from time to time, you may find yourself having a matter against another brother or another sister in Christ. This is not yet heaven. Are we God's people? Is this the church family? Is this a little foretaste of it? Yes, but I hate to tell you, this isn't it yet. This isn't it yet. You know, one man said this many years ago. He said, to dwell above with the saints in God's love. Oh, that will be such glory. To dwell below with the saints I know. Well, that's another story. There's a lot of truth to that. And we kind of recognize that reality. We're still imperfect people. We're capable of making mistakes, even being sometimes a little bit rebellious and prideful in the way that our attitudes are. And sometimes relational issues happen. They just happen. Whether consciously or unconsciously, it's possible to end up with a grievance against another Christian. You're angry towards them. You feel like you've been mistreated. Again, it could be a relational or a social rift, a personal offense, maybe some circumstantial issue. Or as I said, even at times, maybe a a business dilemma or a financial issue. For example, maybe between two Christians, there's a bad business deal that goes on. Or maybe you hire some fellow brother in the Lord, you know, Chuck, the Christian carpenter, not our Chuck. That was just a ju- not, was not directed towards you, Chuck, since I'm looking at him. I have to clarify that. But uh, Bob the Builder, how about that? You know, and, and you hire him to do work because, hey, I'm a Christian. Bro, I'll take care of you, man. I'm going to give you a good deal and going to make sure. And he does horrible work. Now you got a dilemma on your hand. Man, this is horrible work. You're a Christian, man. You want me to pay you for this? And, and now you have this dilemma going on. Or maybe two Christians are in a, a, some type of an agreement, maybe an apartment rental or something. And the one Christian, now he's not paying his rent. And now you got a dilemma. Wait a minute, you rent my apartment. I thought you were a Christian, man. You're not paying me my rent. And so it can even be a business or a financial situation. Look, understanding these things will happen is the first step. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because that's what keeps us from overreacting. Sometimes one of the reasons why we get ourselves into trouble as Christians when problems happen 
is because we're thinking so super spiritual. It's like we're shocked that Christians argue, fight, have disputes and conflicts. Like it's like not supposed to happen. And so then when it does happen, we overreact in the flesh instead of just picking up the Bible and saying, this is the way to resolve things, not how I feel, not how I think, not how the attitude I want a cop would tell me to act. But instead, I obey the word of God. I listen to the Holy Spirit. I humble myself and I do what's right in God's sight to resolve conflict in a proper way. So let me just say before we move on something I think is very important in a passage like this. I do not believe the Bible here is God's word is addressing how we are to handle, let's say, high-level crimes. And be very careful. I don't think this is instruction for how you deal with if an issue of physical abuse arises within a family. Or let's say date rape between two Christians, or a child is sexually abused, or violence, or murder. Listen, those are not offenses and grievances. Those are called criminal acts. And the criminal acts need civil justice. That's what Romans 13 teaches about. That's why God has given authority to police officers and to judicial systems to deal with those things with civil authority. And we have to use wisdom in the distinction. But God is saying here, lesser matters, business problems, personal grievances, they're going to transpire. And Paul's questioning how they were addressing them. The New Living Translation renders this verse, I think, very clearly verse one. It says, when one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit? And ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of just taking it to other believers. So Paul was just saddened and shocked of the way they were handling this. They were taking each other to court. They were suing one another. And they were acting just like the rest of the world outside. And this is what Paul's referring to in verse 1. He says, I, I really can't believe, how dare you? He says, you're going to law against one another? You're taking each other to court and suing one another to get your rights or because you don't want to be cheated out of your money. And he says the worst part, is he says, you're doing this before the unrighteous. You, you, he says, you're not even taking into consideration how this looks before the unsaved world. And think about that. Think of the unsaved population out in the world seeing two Christians come into the courtroom and suing one another and going back and forth. And whether it's the... the you know, the jury or the people who are watching, because again, this is their form of entertainment and they're watching two Christians do this and they're thinking to themselves, man, these Christians, they're just as unforgiving, just as ruthless, just as harsh and unloving and demanding and selfish as all of us are out here. That's not the way I thought Christians behaved. So why would I ever be interested in Christianity? Why would I want to go be a part of the church? I mean, these people aren't even any different than us. And see, this is what Paul was concerned about, the, the testimony and the tarnishing of the Lord's witness. And as the Lord's people, we should take into consideration the Lord's reputation and us being a witness to him, again, is our primary purpose to be salt and light on this earth, to live in a wise way, to draw people to the Lord. And Paul's other point as well in verse 1 is what they were doing going to the unrighteous and the judicial court systems. Paul's saying, not only is it a bad testimony, he's saying in verse 1, it's really not even necessary. That's what he means when he says in verse 1, when he says, you're going to law before the unrighteous, he says, and why not just before the saints? In other words, 
You don't even need to go to the court system. Why don't you just bring the matter before God's people to get some help and mediation in the situation? They could have worked through their matters in that way to find a resolution. And Paul says, look, you have right before you God's people who love you. They have God's value system. They have the word of God. They have God's wisdom. And they could help you resolve your issues. And this is the thing Paul's going to build on going forward now. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy, he says, to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. So again, Paul being directed by the Holy Spirit identifies that because of our future destiny as the saints, referring to God's people, Christians, that because of our future destiny that we are one day going to exercise, he's saying we should be able to judge and deal with our own matters among God's family. He identifies here in verses two and three, two things regarding our future destiny. One thing he mentions, the beginning of verse two, is his one day saints are actually gonna help judge the world. Now, he's not there talking about bringing judgment or punishment against the world for sin. That's Jesus's sole responsibility as God when he judges the world for sin. What he's making reference to is our future function for those of us who've served the Lord Jesus, that one day when Christ returns and sets up his throne on the earth during the kingdom age and rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years, that the Bible teaches that we to some degree are going to help him in that rulership. As he judges and presides over the world, that to some degree we as saints will be involved in that. In Matthew 19, Peter said to Jesus, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus' encouragement was to this. He says, surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Well, wait a minute. That just refers to the 12 disciples then, right? There's only 12 tribes to judge, 12 disciples. Well, in Revelation 3, Jesus said this, to him who overcomes, that's more generic, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says there that the saints will be reigning together with Christ. So as Jesus rules and reigns in righteousness on his throne one day in the kingdom age on this earth over the world, somehow, to some degree, we're going to assist him in the enforcement of his rulership to a lesser degree, reigning over the world together with Jesus as glorified saints who've returned with him. He even adds in verse three, talking about another step further, he says, don't you know that we shall not only judge the world, but we shall even, he says, judge the angels. Now, The Bible simply declares this, but we have no real biblical explanation of what that means. So I can't really tell you what it means. But the point Paul is trying to make under the inspiration of the Spirit is he's saying, look, these are pretty major responsibilities that one day as God's people you're going to be engaged in. He's saying you're going to judge the whole world someday. You're going to actually be involved judging spiritual beings and angels. And so his point is, in light of that future opportunity and responsibility certainly he's saying certainly you have the capability 
to handle less significant things. That's what he says in verse two here. He says, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy, incapable to judge the smallest matters? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? How much more, he says, verse three, things that pertain to this life. So he's saying, if that's what you're going to one day be doing as God's people, surely, he says, you can exercise judgment and make decisions and resolve problems of much smaller matters that pertain to this life. Now, again, the language itself reminds us this, that earthly matters that pertain to this life are much smaller matters in significance to that which is eternal and spiritual and is a much weightier thing. The very language itself referring to the things that pertain to this life, calling them smaller matters, I almost think reminds us importantly that the matters of this life, again, whatever they are, relational rift, conflicts, somebody steals 50 bucks from you that was supposed to be a Christian. God's trying to say, look, in comparison to the eternal matters that are really heavy, these are small matters. These are, are, are way less significant matters. And I think that we do need to remember that perspective because often we get distracted in our focus and reasoning when we get all worked up with whatever the matter is against us and another believer that we need to realize from God's perspective, he's saying, look, I know it seems really huge to you, but you're thinking a little bit too much of it. And God's saying it's really quite a small matter that pertains just to this life. Because to some degree, here's, I think, what God's reminding me is God saying, look, that will only matter in this life. Because the moment you die or the moment Jesus returns or the moment the two of you who will actually almost hate each other now as Christians are in heaven, you won't even be able to hate each other anymore because your flesh will be gone. And you're both going to be in your glorified spiritual state and anything that was between you, you'll never be able to remember for all of eternity. And so it's almost as if God's saying, look, recognize it for what it is. It's almost as if God is trying to emphasize how much does it really matter in the eternal scope? It changes the whole thing. It allows us to think quite differently. And God's reminding us that as his people entrusted with these greater judgments later on, we should also be able amongst ourselves to work through our own problems in-house, if you would. That's what God's kind of saying. Look, you can handle that in-house. You don't have to subcontract that to the world. You can handle that in-house. You can fix the situation. You're God's people. We need to remember God's pathway that via his family, we can work through things. That's what the Bible tells us, that we have capacity from God to be able to work through and address resolutions. And so when a situation happens, yes, I try and deal with it between me and another person, but if need be, I also have the resource of being able to go to other mature believers and say, look, this is going on. Can you help mediate? We're trying to solve this. We don't need to go to the outside world and get their help and assistance. God's people are more than competent to reach God-honoring decisions. Again, can I remind you of Jesus' words, which again, I think these last two chapters are really just expansions of Jesus' statements in Matthew 18 about solving conflicts because Jesus knew we'd have conflicts. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That is, there's an issue. The first thing we are responsible to do biblically is not say, I'm not talking to them. 
if you're offended, responsibility actually rests on you. You're supposed to go to them and get alone with them and face to face and say, hey, I, you know, and you talk through things and you try and, you know, address the situation. He says, if your brother listens to you, you're able to talk it through, work it out. You've gained your brother. Problem resolved. Two Christians should be able to do that, Jesus says. But maybe sometimes there's not walking in the spirit and there's struggle. So he says, if he does not listen, take with you two others that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you can't come to a resolution for whatever that reason may be. Time doesn't permit to talk about all the reasons that could be. Then he says, look, get one or two other mature Christians to come and to, to kind of listen. And maybe they can help objectively mediate and hear you both out and say, look, here's what we think maybe is going on and, and offer some counsel. And maybe you need to resolve it that way. Sometimes that's necessary. He says, however, if they still refuse to listen, then you tell it to the church. The idea is, I believe you bring it to the church leadership. And if he still refuses to listen, then we addressed that last week that you may have to at some point refer to them or in a sense deal with them as if they were a pagan, as if they were like a heathen. And then you don't relate to them as a believer. You actually relate to them as someone in the outside world. But the point being in this is that Jesus was the first one to say, you're gonna have conflicts. I'm telling you, you can, you can resolve them. And here's a few different steps you can follow in the process. And this is what Paul is trying to expand upon. We have the ability to help one another through these situations. And let me just say this, as the Lord's people, we should be willing to help as needed when disputes arise, not just when they're arising with us, but if we see other people having a dispute, what did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, sometimes maybe you see an issue there where people are struggling or maybe someone comes and you're like, I don't want to get involved in that. That is your problem. And I understand sometimes we feel like that. It's like, well, I, the last thing I want to do is get in the middle of your three ring circus and all that tension. Look, we shouldn't be like that. We should always be willing to help mediate as a peacemaker with the heart of the Lord, whereby we can be mature enough, listen, to objectively listen to people's situations in an unbiased way without showing partiality and to offer some counsel and wisdom to them to listen to both sides and offer some wise counsel. And God is saying that's part of the reason that we're together as his family. He says, verse four, if then you have judgments concerning things, notice again, pertaining to this life, do you, he asks another question, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church? Again, the civil courts, judges out there who, you know, they don't even know God. Do you appoint those least esteemed by the church to actually judge? The idea is, he's saying, since, not if in the sense of if it ha since you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, then he says, and you have people who amongst you have adequate resources by God's spirit and help to enable you to resolve things. Then he says, why would you want to point, again, he's questioning this. Why would you want to appoint those least esteemed by the church to solve the problems amongst God's people? Now, when he talks about those least esteemed by the church, he's obviously referring to those who are unsaved, those who are unconverted out in the world. And I think the reason why God is addressing this is God's just simply saying, look, those who are unsaved out in the world, they don't hold the same standard of righteousness and what's right and wrong as you do as God's people. 
they don't have the love of God governing their heart where they truly care about the people they're assisting. They're just doing their job civilly. And a lot of times there is no concern of what pleases God. It's just what they feel is the right answer in a civil situation. Or it could even sometimes be a compromise situation because sometimes a civil court or a judicial person may decide on a matter based upon what they feel like looks best for the community. And it may not even be a just decision. And so there are all these things that can corrupt the proper judgment, lack of morals and use of just human reasoning. And these are the things, he says, these are the kind of people we would least esteem within the church. So Paul's saying, why would the church want to go to those kind of people to resolve their problems when they could get a whole different decision that's much more valuable and helpful right among the assistance of God's fellow family members who have a lot better resources from God's perspective to actually help them come to a good God-honoring solution. You know, if I could illustrate, to me, it's like this. Let's say you have two 12-year-old twin boys, and they're having a sibling conflict. And those two 12-year-old boys want to get their conflict resolved, and available right in the next room is their Christian parents. But instead of going to their Christian parents that are available right there in the next room, they bring their matter to their three-year-old little brother. Right. And you, what you have your parents right there available in the next room. Why would you go to your three-year-old little brother? Well, to me, it's almost an analogy of what this is here. Paul says, okay, so we have a problem as God's family. So we take each other to civil court to solve our problems. Instead of just going to each other as God's family and prayerfully, biblically, under the leading of the spirit, walking through things and finding God's resolution. That's why Paul says, verse five, look at, he says, I say these things to your shame. He says, it's a shame. I actually even have to say this kind of stuff to question what you're doing there. He says, is it so that there is not again, verse five, a wise man amongst you? Not even one. He says, you can't find one wise person there who will be able to judge between his two brethren. Paul found it incredibly hard to believe that there was no believer wise enough amongst the church there in Corinth that could help them judge and resolve these matters between the two brothers. Paul's saying, come on, you have a bunch of people there in the church who have the Holy Spirit. And Paul said back in chapter two, we've received the spirit of God so that we may have wisdom from God so that we can discern things spiritually from God's perspective. He also said that as Christians, we have the mind of Christ, that is we have the mindset of Christ of what would please Jesus or what would Jesus do in this situation. So between that spiritual reality, the ability to seek God in prayer, the opportunity to look into God's word and to have all these things, Paul says, you mean to tell me, verse five, he says, again, he's almost being kind of a little bit sarcastic. You mean to tell me there's not one person in the whole church that's wise enough to offer some counsel and mediation and assistance in this situation? The clear answer is, of course there was. Of course there was not only one, there was probably multiple people. God had put in place within his family people who could help arbitrate and mediate these situations. That's what he was just saying in verses two and three prior to this. There are people available. God's people can work through these things. The question is, and this is what Paul's getting to is, do you really want to utilize them? It's available, but he's saying, 
the problem is, is, you know, you can have available to you the resources, but Paul's trying to say, are you choosing to handle things God's way or your own way? Because that's what makes the difference. Are you choosing to handle things God's way or the world's way? Well, Paul answers that verse six, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. My Bible has an exclamation point after that. What Paul is identifying there is he says, I know there are believers who could help you to work through these matters. And maybe they already tried to help them work through these matters. But Paul says, again, sadly, what's going on is you're being selfish and you're disregarding Christ's honor in the process. And you're just doing things your own way and taking each other to court and suing one another. Instead of God's ideal pathway, they were just addressing it the way they felt like addressing the situation. And this is what was causing them to behave in the way they were. Of course, what was the root issue? Well, it was obvious. It was selfishness. It was pride. It was stubbornness and even rebellion and bitterness. These believers were not taking appropriate responsibility the way they should have been to address the matter according to God's ideal and pathway. Instead, what they were doing was they were handling things the way the world handled them, the way they felt they wanted to handle things. And look, I'm going to speculate, but maybe perhaps they'd already gotten counsel initially from a few fellow Christians. And maybe though they already got some counsel, yet they did not put that into practice because they felt entitled to do things the way they pleased instead of just following the counsel that was given to them in the situation. And so they kept behaving in selfish immaturity, wanting their own way, being stubborn, and not properly carrying out their part to work towards a full resolution. And let me just say, when there is an issue at hand, you and I, as individual believers, we do have a personal responsibility to do our part in the situation to make the proper sacrifices and do the proper work that's required to resolve a problem. And this becomes, listen, the key issue between what happens in the world to some degree and what happens in the church. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. In the world, if you go to court and you sue one another, what happens? A judgment is made by an authority, a judge. And then once that judgment is made, you are obligated by law to carry out whatever that judge says, right? If not, you're going to be punished civilly. So a judge makes a decision, he puts down the gavel, and you are forced into obedience, deal's done. You will carry out what I ask because I am a judge, and under the punishment of law, you will obey my authority and carry it out. And usually, 90% of the time, it works. And people submit to that authority and they carry it out. Now, here's the problem. In God's family, we live by a higher law. It's called the law of love. And God expects us to submit to that higher law of love. But in God's family, we can give people counsel. We can exhort proper obedience. We can say, look, this is what you should do as a married couple to work through something. But at the end of the day, I can't go home with a married couple and force them under the threat of civil disobedience and punishment of law to behave maritally. Right. They have to take a responsibility to submit to the higher law of love and listen to the authority of the Holy Spirit 
and not the authority of their human spirit and do what's right. Well, the same thing in any other matter or situation. You can have a fellow Christian sit down with you, offer some advice and counsel, and, 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 and look, here's what you should do, and I think this is what's going on, and offer input and guidance, and they can say, look, this is what you should do, and they can exhort you by the Holy Spirit. You should follow this and resolve your situation. It's what honors the Lord, and, and it will res- but at the end of the day, you have to be willing to submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit's rulership and not your human spirit ruling over you, or that conflict and problem will just continue like a rotating door to just continue to happen. This is the challenge. You want to take it to the courts of the world, you can do that, and you'll be forced to do something, but God's not into forcing people. God's into people submitting to the Holy Spirit's power by free will and carrying out what they know is right. And Paul was having to say, look, certainly you could have resolved this, but instead he says, you're just being selfish. And you're being proud and stubborn and you're taking your matters to court. and You're suing each other before the unsaved world. Paul says, look what he says in verse seven. He says, now, therefore, it is an utter failure for you that you go to law to court against one another. So their decision to be proud and selfish like the world and to sue each other in the public courts to get their way. Notice verse 7, from God's perspective, what was it considered? Look at your Bible. What was it considered? An utter failure. This is important. An utter failure. Needing to prove my case. I am right and they are wrong. I am not wrong. They are wrong and I am right. Needing to make sure you got your way and made sure that other person is punished for what they did wrong to you. It might have seemed like on a human level in the flesh, a victory. I won. Yeah, I won. And God looked at it from his perspective and God said, you lost. You feel like you won because you satisfied your flesh because you got your way. But God says from heaven's perspective, that's already in my book an utter failure. Why? Because from God's perspective, it was an indication of defeat because it was a loss on the spiritual level. Look, this is great reminder for us because sometimes we think we've won in a matter and from heaven's perspective, we've completely lost because we lost spiritually. And it was a defeat in some ways. Sometimes we feel we need to keep pushing in a battle. We're going to get the victory over something. You know, and that victory may feel like if we get that victory, that's right, I finally got the victory. And God says, you didn't get the victory. You know what you did? You just let yourself be defeated by the devil. You didn't get the victory. You lost in that situation. Because, look, whenever God's people act like the world or just continue to hurt one another, or behave or do things that dishonor God's reputation, that's not a victory. That's a complete defeat. Because the devil has defeated us and caused us to behave foolishly, and God says, that's an utter failure when we've done that. Boy, that's a a good reminder to us. And I think this is why he concludes the passage by asking some searching questions to challenge us of how to live by a higher law of love. I don't want to make it an utter failure, In God's view, how do I succeed? Well, it may not be the way that we prefer in our flesh. Look what he says, verse 7. Why do you not rather, he says, just accept wrong? The Holy Spirit says, isn't it an option 
may not be your preferred option. But he says, isn't it an option? It is an option to just accept the wrong done, to allow it to have happened, and to let it go. Just let it go. Just accept it. I was wronged. You don't even have to prove that you were wronged. I was wronged. But I'm just going to accept it and let it go. I'm just going to completely let it go. I'm going to make a choice without needing to get revenge or prove my way or somehow, you know, I'm just going to absorb the mistreatment, even as Christ did to a much greater degree. He was wronged. And perhaps, look, perhaps someone has wronged you. Three months ago, three weeks ago, three years ago, 13 years ago. And they're actually even a Christian. And they have wronged you. Is it not a true possibility that maybe the Holy Spirit could be saying to you to bring an end to the matter between you and them and what you're struggling with in your heart? Why do you not just just accept wrong? Just accept you were wronged in the situation and why not just allow that to happen? Look, for the sake of God's glory. For the, for the greater good. I'll just, I was wronged. And for the greater good in Christ's honor, I'll just accept it because Jesus accepted a lot of wrong. And for the greater good in God's glory, he just embraced it and endured it. He goes on to say as well, maybe you have been cheated. Maybe you've been ripped off. Somebody's stolen money from you. Look what he says, verse seven. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? See, what if as an act of faith, somebody stole 50 bucks from me, somebody stole 500 bucks from me? What if as an act of faith, I allow myself to be cheated by saying, you know what? I'm just going to let God deal with the situation. I'm just going to trust God to restore back to me the money that was stolen from me and just trust God will take care of me. And that God will deal with someone else who mistreated one of his children. There have been a few times in my life when I have truly kind of retreated in a situation and thought as much as my flesh wanted to do this to someone's neck, where instead I thought to myself, you know what? If somebody did something like that to one of my kids, man, that would not be good for them. And then I say, I'm one of God's kids. I actually feel very sorry for that person because I know how I would feel as a father. And so, you know what? I'm just going to trust my father to handle with his disapproval of what that person done to me. And I'm just going to let God deal with them. And I can kind of just... Let it go. And quite honestly, it keeps me out of trouble more when I do that. And you just turn it over to God and you say, God, okay, I was cheated. But you know what, God, I trust that rather than me fighting and kicking and punching, I just trust you. You can repay it, Lord. You can restore it back to me. You can provide what was taken from me or stolen from me. Now, is this easy counsel to follow that God's giving here? Of course not, right? It takes an act of faith, truly, does it not? I mean, it takes faith to read verse seven. Why not let yourself be wronged and let yourself be cheated? It takes faith to do that, to say, all right, in faith, Lord, I'm just going to just let myself be cheated and I'm going to trust you to take care of me. It takes a real denial of ourself to let ourselves be wrong. But let me just say, is that not the mindset of Christ? What did first Corinthians two say? you have the mind of Christ. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did not Jesus, to a much greater degree, let himself be what? Wronged. 
He let himself be wrong. He let himself be cheated. And as the spirit of Christ lives in you, and he does now as a Christian, you can yield to that spirit. I at times can yield to that spirit for the greater good of God's glory and say, you know what? For the greater glory of Christ, I'm just going to let myself be wrong in that situation. I'm just going to trust God to address that and, and, and absorb the wrong. Paul then indicts those who were doing the wrong. Look how he concludes verse 8. No, he says, instead, this is what they were doing. He says, you yourselves continue to do wrong and cheat. And again, he says, and you do these things to your very own brethren. So he rebukes those who in spiritual immaturity were actually being the offenders still in the situation. And no doubt the language is intended to be strong there in verse 8. He's rebuking the offender for doing wrong to fellow believers and cheating them. Because, look, there's never justification, no matter what we think, there's never justification to do wrong to somebody. There's never justification to cheat somebody. And all the more God is saying here, especially how out of place, to do wrong and to cheat our fellow spiritual family. He says, and you do these things, he says, verse 8, to your brothers and sisters in Christ? The idea there is to, to shock us into reality. See, how utterly disgraceful to wrong and mistreat our own spiritual family. Look, as we look at a text like this, as I said at the beginning, nine questions the Holy Spirit puts in here. Nine times it comes in question form, question form, question form. Maybe that's a good reminder to all of us to some degree that sometimes the Holy Spirit is at work in my life and your life. And maybe what he's been doing recently is he's been powerfully challenging and questioning you in regards to how you've been dealing with something. And if the Holy Spirit has been repeatedly challenging you and questioning you in regards to how you're dealing with something, maybe that's his way of trying to awaken you. Look, you're on a path of error. Let's get off the path of error. Let's make things right between you and and God first and foremost, and just trust the rest of the Lord and let the Holy Spirit direct in the way that God would please.